over the long period here because of these higher interest rates too, you know, and the lack of available construction financing, the construction starts have come down considerably. Um, on a national level, you know, the construction starts were, you know, I think last year around 113 million um, nationwide. And then now this past quarter, uh, third quarter, end of third quarter is 40 million. So at some point when the demand switch flips on, even if it flips on even just a little bit, you know, with the lack of potential supply that, that will be out there, then we could start to see rent growth again in our market. Um, you know, because we saw astronomical rent growth over the past couple of years. I mean, at, at one point uh, in the IE West, which is Inland Empire West submarket, you know, rent growth from second quarter 2021 to second quarter 2022 was 98.6%. So, so that is a, a drastic jump. And so now we're seeing that come come back down to to those kind of, not to those levels yet where it was, you know, in 21, but it's probably headed towards that level. Hey everyone, welcome to the Real Market Talks podcast. On this episode, we're covering everything industrial, with a focus on the Southern California region with Jay Tanwan from Scanel Properties. Jay leads development in the region and keeps his finger on the pulse of supply chains and logistics, as well as market forces impacting the industry. Jay shares a lot of useful insights into economic trends he is observing, as well as other factors that he is keeping an eye on, such as climate impacts on logistics, as well as global competition for supply. He also shares how he found his way into real estate development after beginning his career with the Navy and where his career has taken him since then. As always, if you're enjoying this episode or the show in general, it would be great to hear your feedback, especially if you want to leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in being on the show or know someone who might be, please reach out at realmarkettalks at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening in. Now let's hear from Jay. Jay, uh, thanks for joining me on the show. Uh, really grateful to have you on here. Really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Just to get going, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and give us sort of your elevator pitch about what you do. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Keith. Really uh, happy to, to join you and uh, spend some time uh, chatting with you. Um, so yeah, my uh, by way of background, I'm, I'm originally from San Diego, California. Um, uh, made my way out to the Naval Academy um, for uh, college, uh, majored in uh, economics, uh, ran track there. I was a, a high hurdler. Um, and then after that, I spent uh, six years in the Navy uh, doing um, uh, supply chain and logistics um, for, for the Navy. So I was on a ship uh, for, for three years. Um, but total, uh, I was in the, the Navy for six years. So, um, and as mentioned, three of those years were um, uh, at sea. 
with uh, the USS Way City. It's a cruiser uh, based out of uh, Mayport, Florida, which is basically Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, so uh, served there uh, for the Navy and uh, made my way back home to San Diego for my last duty station in the Navy um, and did my last couple years there. And then at that point, I was deciding whether or not to stay in the Navy or get out and eventually decided to uh, go and uh, get, get my MBA at UC Irvine. So um, wanted to have some sort of transition period between, you know, the Navy and then, you know, civilian life because it is a pretty significant uh, transition. And I just didn't want to jump into an industry without um, knowing anything about it at all. So so the business school was was great. And I would recommend that, you know, for, for veterans, you know, coming out of uh, uh the, the military, you know, to, to have some sort of transition to, to, to feel things out. Cause sometimes you just end up going with the first thing that, that pops up or chasing the, the highest paying job, but maybe that might not be the, the best, um, uh, career field, um, that, that for you. So, you know, that's what I did. And, um, I, I went into business school thinking that I was going to get into real estate. Uh, but I just didn't know what area I, I, re, I didn't know anything about real estate really. I just had, you know, some exposure from, from my parents, you know, they, they had a, a couple of uh, small like investment properties, you know, s- single family rental type sort of things and a duplex. But, you know, other than that, you know, just very limited exposure to, to the real estate world. Um, but once I got into business school, I mean, I really loved it. Uh, started doing internships, was meeting with a lot of people in the industry. And so that's what really, attracted me uh, to the industry was just the experience working and talking to people that really loved what they did. And I saw kind of all the possibilities that you could go in in commercial real estate. Because I was originally thinking residential real estate, because that's kind of what most people think about when you say real estate. They say, oh, you know, buying and selling houses, you know, but there's obviously such a much bigger world out there in the world of real estate. And so that's what I discovered. And, and, you know, I ended up graduating from business school at UC Irvine in 2009, which was, you know, the great recession time. So, um, you know, I was able to find uh, employment right away with doing office tenant rep brokerage um, for JLL. So I did that for two years. Um, And so, so that was uh, not something, you know, I think, post MBA careers are typically, uh, pursue, you know, you, you, you do, you know, some sort of analyst role or some acquisitions role. I mean, that's kind of the traditional post MBA career path after, uh, uh, after, uh, graduating. Right. And if you're going into a commercial real estate, but, but, you know, as, as, you know, timing and, uh, and as luck would have it, you know, I ended up doing brokerage, which I loved. And so, I'm really grateful for that period, you know, because it's, you know, helped me a lot today, kind of what I'm doing now and and all that stuff. So, um, you know, so I did, I was, like I said, I was doing office tenant rep brokerage. So this is, you know, during the Great Recession. So if you recall during that time, you know, there's a subprime mortgage uh, crisis and all that uh, stuff going on. Um, So all those office tenants vacated. And so there was a huge uh, gap in, in the office market at that time. So 
um, and the mark and the economy was in a recession, um, but there was still activity because there was tenants that would um, downsize or you know some tenants that were in class B space they could upgrade to class A space because it was it was less expensive. And that's what I was doing for you know a t- couple years, and then had an opportunity to join a company called Panatoni Development, which is an industrial developer that has offices all over the U.S. and and Europe as well. So um, I didn't know anything about industrial. Um, I didn't know where the Inland Empire was. I didn't have a construction background. You know, I didn't have much of a finance background because I came from the Navy. Um, and my brokerage background in leasing was was an office. So, you know, I, I really came in pretty green and cold um, into industrial uh, development. But, you know, just over time, you know, I learned the each, you know, kind of building block of the business. I started out doing a lot of leasing, then started doing some uh, tenant improvement work here and there. So I was getting exposure to to uh, design and construction management on a small scale with with tenant improvements and working with tenants and 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 also with buyers because sometimes we would sell uh, properties as well um, and so you know slowly but surely started getting on you know doing more entitlement work more uh, construction management while continuing the leasing and disposition side of things and and then really started picking up uh, acquisitions and you know, so I, I over that time period, over the almost 11 years I was there, I was able to get exposed to a lot of d- deals and a lot of different deals and how to structure different deals. So, so that really set me up well, I think, to the position that, that I'm at now, which was, you know, Scannell Properties, which similar to Panatoni has offices all over the U.S. and in Europe. And, you know, so I uh, was fortunate enough to be asked to open this uh, SoCal office, which is the first SoCal office that we've had. Uh, Scannell Properties has uh, built about two and a half million square feet in Southern California, but it's all been built to suit um, and all industrial. Um, But, you know, wanted to do more spec development work out here um, because historically Southern California has been more of a spec development type of market for industrial. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's been, been great. Um, you know, obviously there's challenging, um, uh, times in the market right now, which we can get into later, but you know, that's, that's, uh, all that stuff's, you know, all you know, outside of our control. And then there's a lot of things that we can control. Um, um, and that's what I'm, I'm focused on and, uh, you know, pushing ahead and, and continuing to learn and continue to get better. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's uh, my history in, uh, in a few minutes there. And I always enjoy meeting people who have entered into the real estate profession and have a military background because it looks like the, the skills that you guys get in, um, with that kind of training and that background actually lends itself in a lot of different ways to what you do in real estate. Did you find that having that training and having that experience in that prior career gave you an edge in certain areas or helped you make the transition a little bit easier in certain ways? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, uh, I think first thing was that I was in logistics and supply chain management. So, you know, it's essentially an end user. um, And I didn't know that my career would take me to logistics real estate. So, 
you know, it makes for a, a nice story and, and life kind of works out sometimes, you know, to, 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 you know, kind of make a, a nice story like that, you know, where, uh, something in your past life can actually have some, um, spillover effects, positive spillover effects into your, your, your next career. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's one thing. And then I think the, the biggest things though, were just, you know, learning to, to deal with people and leadership and, and managing people. Uh, cause in the military, you know, we, we work with people from all walks of life, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, so all, you know, all different ages and you're interacting with these people and you're in a very, on a ship, you're, you know, in a very confined, tight, uh, environment. So, you know, you're, you're almost forced to work with these people. I mean, if there's a, if you have a conflict, you better figure it out quickly. And, and cause you, you know, we all have to work together to, to achieve a common goal and, um, you know, and, and sometimes the stakes are, are a lot higher than just, um, you know, some, something in the civilian world, uh, an issue that comes up, you know, um, you know, I think like, especially for the folks that were you know, in the front lines and in the Marines or in the army, you know, they're, they're having bullets, um, um, you know, uh, get, get shot at. So, um, that, that's a, a whole different perspective, right. It's on, on problems out in Iraq or Afghanistan versus problems in, in an office. Um, so, you know, it, it does give you some good perspective. Um, and, and like I said, I mean, I think the experience working with people and, and, you know, leadership and, and all of that. And I felt like, I, you know, I grew up so much during my time on, on the ship. I mean, I was 22 when I first showed up, I didn't know anything. Um, but, you know, I just relied on, you know, my, my mentors and relied on the, the folks that were working with me and working for me. Because uh, we're thrust into a leadership position from day one, and I think that's a big difference too in the civilian world. Because, like, you know, at uh, most civilian type jobs, right? You you start out at the bottom as an analyst, or you know, and you kind of work your way up, and then you prove yourself, and then once you're more senior in your career, then you get placed into a leadership role, and there's you because of your performance as an analyst and as a uh, you know, operator, but maybe not necessarily for your leadership skills. So you have to learn at a later age, right. And how to be a good manager and how to, uh, you know, effectively, uh, manage a team and all that. But, uh, in the military, you know, everyone is, is, you know, essentially a, a leader. Um, and, and then the, the higher you go up, you know, the, the more, the more people you get put under you. So, um, so that was, you know, I think a, a big difference and really something that, that stood out to me uh, that, that really helped um, in, in the transition, um, especially kind of in, in a role that I'm now, you know, building a team, building a culture and, and looking to, to grow an office in, in Southern California for Scanal. Yeah, it sounds like those skills would have lent themselves really usefully to what you're doing now. That's incredible. Yeah. So you mentioned this, you're working in the Southern California market. Whenever I hear people talking about industrial, it always seems to come back to Southern California. It seems like there's so much going on out there, which is why I was excited to, to have you on and, and hear more about it from you. Can you talk a little bit about the region and the, the markets that you're working in and, and what those kind of look like? What kind of you know region territories you guys are looking at? Sure. Yeah. 
No, yeah, you're you're exactly right. You know, Southern California, you know, for for longest time has really been, you know, the epicenter of logistics for the entire country. You know, the the biggest things that we got going for us are the ports of LA and Long Beach, which, you know, they are the two largest ports by volume combined. Uh, they're adjacent to each other. If you know, for other uh, listeners that, who may not be uh, as familiar, they're adjacent to each other, and they are the largest ports by volume in the entire country by far. Um, in fact, forty percent of all the goods coming into the U.S. Um, uh, via ports are, are coming in through those two ports. So, um, it's a, a very vital to uh, the logistics industry um, to to have those two ports. Um, and so the whole premise of industrial is like if you're if you're importing stuff from Asia and likely China, um, who's been uh, over you know history been kind of the U.S. manufacturing uh, base, um, and you know I think that's uh, you know people are, or firms are, are starting to, to to move away from that to some extent, but there's other countries in Southeast Asia that are you know stepping up and and looking to, to be that next manufacturing um, uh, resource for, for the U.S. Um, but, you know, like I was saying, you know, the whole premise of industrial is, you know, you, you have that, those products that are manufactured elsewhere coming in through the ports. Once they get to the ports, they don't just go to the, directly to the consumer. There's, they have to be stored somewhere, and likely they're going to be stored in Southern California warehouses before they get distributed to the rest of the country, or to even the local population, which is massive. So the Southern California region alone has 24 million people. So, you know, that is a huge population base. So just the the sheer size of a number of people that are here in this region, you know, make a good case for needing industrial, right? So, um, and then the 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 explosion of e-commerce has also, you know, greatly contributed to the, you know, demand for uh, industrial um, in, in Southern California. So what, what that means is, you know, there's, there's really, you know, with this many people, you, you need to, as an e-commerce company, you need to have, you know, last mile uh, capabilities because these consumers want faster and faster deliveries. So it used to be two-day shipping was kind of the, the fast mode of shipping, and then it got to one day. Now it's same day. Now it's, you can, you know, uh, one hour, two hour, you know. So, so the, the, the faster you want the goods, then you need warehouses closer and closer to these major population centers. So, um, and e-commerce historically, just because of the way it's set up, has a much greater uh, footprint and need for real estate um, space. So, you know, I think I've seen, you know, we're about 24, 25%, I believe, in terms of market share versus uh, brick and mortar uh, uh, end users. Or, um, so, so that is, is um you know, growing, right? So I think in the next 10 years, that's projected to be in the low 30s. Uh, so, so with that, you know, you, you just need more, more, um, more, more real estate. So, 
Um, you know, we're, we're going through a period right now, you know, obviously because of what happened with, with COVID that really, and the lockdowns, you know, that really, um, you know, ramped up the, the, the implementation of e-commerce uh, for uh, a lot of folks, right? So uh, folks that weren't, um, you, know, you know, obviously looking to, to get into e-commerce or order online or weren't comfortable, they were forced to get comfortable. So, so that really, uh, you know, increased the, the demand. And, and I think a lot of folks know that, but, you know, now that things are starting to normalize, things are starting, you know, the, the economy is starting to slow down. You know, we have, you know, higher inflation. We have the Fed, you know, raising the Fed funds rate, which is affecting, you know, all the, all the interest rates and has a, a, a lasting effect through, throughout the economy that we're experiencing right now. And, and commercial real estate is especially getting hit hard with that. But, you know, we're, we're going through some sort of normalization, some sort of pullback. So, so the warehouse demand in Southern California has been down a bit. But, you know, I think the, the long-term demand drivers are there and it's still going to be a, a very viable and sought-after product type. You know, um, it's just we're, we're going through a, a period right now, um, like everyone else, I think. Um, but, you know, so, so we'll continue to, to, to monitor and see what happens. There's a lot happening, um, and I can uh, get into to more of that as well. So, And with industrial, there's a lot of different types of industrial product. Do you want to maybe kind of give an overview of some of the different types of industrial products that you guys develop? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, historically, you know, Scanell's been um, just doing built-to-suits, you know, for, so really so, since the company was founded in 1990 till about 2012, it was primarily built-to-suits. So, you know, those built-to-suits would take Scanell all over the country. I think we've done uh, deals in all 50 states because of that. So, um, you know, we've done cold storage, which is basically you know, just, uh, you know, storing food and refrigerated uh, products. So, um, you know, and those are very tenant specific. So it could get very intense in terms of the requirements and the, the specific build out that the, the tenants require. And so that's really been Scanell's expertise over the time is just doing, you know, built to suits, working with tenants, building a strong client base to really develop you know, whatever they want within the industrial uh, uh, side of things. So, you know, cold storage is one, you know, the, what we see most is, you know, just a typical warehouse distribution type buildings, which are, you know, basically, you know, four walls and a roof, you know, and they have a bunch of dock doors, a truck cord, and that's, that's what's, what's going on. You know, product comes in and out, right? Um, the, on, on trucks, they get delivered and then they, they get sorted in the warehouse and then they send product out from there. So, so that's, you know, the, the majority of, of, of uh, industrial that we do. And there's also, you know, manufacturing. Um, so those are usually very tenant specific as well, similar to cold storage in terms of the uh, specificity in terms of what the uh, tenant requirements may be. Um, you know, these are, you know, the, the, the large uh, companies that retailers and, you know, that, that are, that are, or even car manufacturers, semiconductor manufacturers that are doing that sort of stuff that, that have, 
you know, a very specific uh, need. So those are, you know, just, I think, a few of the, the major, you know, types of industrial that, that someone can build, you know, and then even within, you know, like I was saying, the, uh, the just the, the warehouse uh, distribution type buildings. I mean, now with e-commerce, you know, there's the last mile facilities. So these have a different profile. You know, there's, you know, the, your smaller type buildings that are much more closer into where the, the residential communities are. So you can get those packages faster to your doorsteps. So, so that's, you know, a, a, a growing part of, of what we're doing now um, as well. Um, so, you know, another, you know, it, it falls within industrial, but it's, uh, you know, outdoor storage, iOS, industrial outdoor storage. So, so for, for a period there, that was a very hot, uh, hot, uh, kind of thing in the market where, you know, when the, the activity was so, so great, you know, uh, all these companies needed places to store their trucks, you know, and, and outdoor storage became very, uh very coveted. So that's, you know, that demand, I think, has, has cooled off a bit, just like, you know, overall tenant demand in, in the market. Um, but that is another uh, type of uh, industrial, um, uh, I guess, product that it's, that's, uh, that's being built um, out there. Yeah, that's a great overview. And you mentioned that being at the point of source of those ports is important uh, to be a part of those distribution channels into other regions of the country, but you're also supporting the Southern California region. And the Southern California region has been getting a lot of attention. It's been going through its own transformations. Do you want to talk a little bit about how those markets have been evolving and what kind of population changes you've seen there? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, with, with California, you know, and you know, Southern California in particular, I mean, there, there has been some, you know, uh, migration away from, from Southern California. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's still, you know, we still have 24 million people. So it's still a, a very large population, you know, and, and people want to live here, you know, so, so that has a, a, a big factor too, right? So there's, you know, the, the weather obviously is a big thing. Yes, there's other things that, that people do not like, you know, high taxes and, you know, d you know, so, you know there's uh, some folks that uh, also, you know, just don't agree with what's happening politically and things like that. But, you know, there's always stuff like that. I mean, I, you know, there's n nothing, nowhere's ever, you know, really perfect, right? So, um, but, you know, in terms of lifestyle, you know, I think people do want to live here because of the lifestyle that they could, you know, they can, uh, they can achieve out here. I mean, it's, uh, in Southern California, it's one of the few places where, you know, you can go to the snow, go to the beach and go to the desert all within 24 hours. So, you know, if you're outdoorsy and all that stuff, you know, there's plenty, plenty to do. And, you know, with, with this many people, you can find someone or, you know, that, that has a similar interest that, that you do. Um, cause there's so many different, uh, 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 types of people walks the life out here. So, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I mentioned all that just because, you know, I think the, the population here is, you know, just a, a big, big thing in terms of, you know, the future viability of, you know, industrial and, and the need for, for warehouses in, in Southern California. Yeah, it seemed to come to my attention that despite some of the negative news that I was hearing, especially revolving around trends that were taking place during the pandemic, there still seemed to be a strong draw that was kind of returning 
given the reasons that you were describing, the lifestyle there just offers so many different attributes that attract people to that region uh, and the diversity of things that you can do there and, and just the, the proximity of all those those different elements. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I've, I've lived in other parts of the country. You know, I lived in Florida, I lived in Georgia, Maryland. You know, so I've, I've enjoyed living in those parts of the country. But, you know, this is where I'm from in Southern California. So, um, you know, I, me personally, I, I don't think there's, a, you know, any, anywhere else I want to live. So, you know, I think other people, you know, 24 million other people likely have that same sentiment. Yeah. So getting into the, the next part here, obviously there has been uh, a dramatic shift for every region of the country, given the events that took place during the pandemic. Do you want to describe the trends that you were seeing before, during, and now coming out of that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think obviously during the pandemic, you know, when everyone was, you know, locked down, there was also being, you know, money basically being you know, printed, you know, so people had money and they're spending and, you know, so the, the, the need for industrial space was very great, you know, that obviously what that does is it creates uh, higher prices, which is inflation. And so I think at one point, uh, Jay Powell, uh, the Fed chair was saying it was transitory inflation uh, because of the supply chain issues. But I think, you um, most people that I spoke with, and this is, you know, kind of anecdotally, you know, no one felt it was transitory because of what just happened with the pandemic and the printing of money and all that stuff. So, you know, I don't think it was a surprise to, to a lot of people in our, in, in my circles, at least that, that saw that, you know, this inflation was going to be pretty, pretty sticky. And so the Fed acted in March of 22 to uh, rate, start raising the Fed funds rate and uh, to combat inflation because they have a, a dual mandate, as you know, to fight inflation and, and keep uh, employment uh, stable. Um, so inflation was, I think, at 9% at one point in July of 22. So the Fed got really aggressive in uh, raising interest rates really quickly. And over a, a long period of time, I think it was I think it was 10 in a row meetings that they, they were raising interest rates. So, um, so that does that, that drastic action, you know, had, you know, really, uh, pretty devastating, uh, effects for commercial real estate. Cause you know, uh, the, uh, leverage and, and, um, uh, you know, the, the construction loans and all that and, and lending and that, that's really what, what makes the, development go right so we we need that to to you know make our projects really really hum and when debt was super cheap and available you know you could you know justify a lot of things and you know and and rent growth was happening and and all of that so it was it was a good time in the market but once the fed started um you know doing that with their interest rates it started affecting you know uh developers ability to um to find, you know, construction loans that were at reasonable terms because the, the, the terms that, that we assumed are, were no longer uh, in play. And then I think on the other side of things is like, you know, other product types, like with Office, for example, you know, they're, you know, obviously going through their transition because of COVID. And so how that affects industrial is because, 
you know, these office loans that are coming due, um, you know, you have, let's say it's a hundred million dollar loan and then it's coming due now, but now that, um, that office building is only valued at 50 million because of, you know, work from home. People are, you know, the, the, the landlords for this office building, the, the NOI is way down, you know, tenants have vacated, they've, uh, decrease their office footprint and, you know, they got hybrid workers, people working from home. So, you know, that, that NOI number's down. So the valuation is less. So, so you have this loan that's maturing. So how are you going to make up that difference? You know, that 50 million in this, this example, right? So it's a, it's a tough thing. So now, now these regional banks who've been historically the lenders for construction loans on for, industrial buildings of, you know, they're, they're essentially tied up, you know, trying to shore up what's happening on the office side of things. So, so, you know, that's kind of one thing that that's really um, going to come to a head here over these next couple of years is a lot of these loans start maturing and what are the banks going to do? Um, and we have these, you know, higher, higher interest rates. Um, and then I think just from a, uh, you know, supply standpoint in Southern California for industrial square footage, you know, I think that, you know, supply has, you know, continued to, to deliver, but the tenant demand has gone uh, way down. So, so we're, we're experiencing, you know, a, a tick up in, in vacancy um, in our market. You know, at one point you could look at all of Southern California, which is about, you know, two billion square feet of industrial and it was you know less than one percent you know across all of southern california which is you know virtually zero uh, zero vacancy at one point and so now that's starting to to tick up for example you know um, inland empire now um, which was at one point point one percent vacant you know in 2021 um you know, in 2022, you know, kind of in the super low uh, vacancy is now up to 3.5 or 3.4. So, you know, that's still historically low compared to, you know, other years, but, you know, to go from essentially zero to 3.5, that's, it's quite a bit and it's, it's growing. Is that change, do you think, um, being more attributed to just the, on the tenant side than being more conservative and holding back a little bit? Or is there just development that's been outpacing the demand on the tenant side? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in, in Southern California, especially in LA and Orange County, which are very much infill markets, it's hard to really get overbuilt because there's already existing buildings there. Um, so there's already kind of a natural um, barrier there uh, to, to, to continue building. And then another big thing that, that dampens the, you know, s- supply being delivered, um, is the, the regulatory environment in Southern California and California as well. I mean, so, you know, there's, uh, jurisdictions that are, um, anti-warehouse there's, you know, we have a, a process called CEQA, which is the California Environmental Quality Act, which requires several technical studies to be done in advance prior to getting an approval to build an industrial uh, building. And so the larger the project, likely the higher visibility it gets and the longer it takes to get uh, 
through those approvals and get entitled. Um, so, so there's already you know just natural barriers that really make it difficult to to build in in uh, in California, and that's why I think you know for the long term it's it's gonna it's it's you know always a coveted uh, place to be because of those high barriers to entry. Not anyone can just jump in and start you know building what they want to build. Um, so so yeah, I think the tenant demand issue i think is the biggest thing i mean because you know what you look at is is tenants they they're likely doing reasonably well you know the economy you know i think last quarter annualized grew 4.9% you know in gdp so you know the economy at the moment is seemed to be still doing well but you know these tenants aren't really talking about expansion or or, or anything like that. It's more, hey, we need to consolidate or we need to downsize or we need to just stay in place and see see what happens in the market. You know, because I think, you know, with, with the supply that's out there now, you know, I think tenants can see that, you know, there's probably more downward pressure on rents here in the near term. So how far that goes down or for how long, we don't know, right? But I think tenants are just waiting as long as they can because they feel that there's more pain. Whereas you flip it over on the landlord side, you know, I think landlords are, are waiting as well to, to do some deals because they think that, you know, it's going to be better the longer they wait. So, so there's a kind of a mismatch in, in strategies there. And so we're seeing a lot of, um, or not a lot, but a lack of, of deal flow and deal velocity right now on the leasing market and on the sales for, for industrial product in Southern California. Um, you know, these tenants, like I said, just, you know, they're, they see the news, they see recession potential. And so, and they feel it maybe in, even in their business, they don't see like the, the same uh, deal flow uh, within their business to, to, uh, to, to encourage expansion or, or taking on new space. And, you know, and the interest rates, the higher interest rates are affecting them, too, because they they need leverage to uh, invest in their business as well. So with these higher rates, that's preventing tenants from doing that. So so with tenant demand um, down or, or stagnant and, you know, supply still being delivered at some level, you know, that's creating, you know, what, what I was mentioned earlier, you know, just we're having you know, a uh, tick up in, in vacancy to, to some level. But I think that, you know, over the long period here, you know, these, because of these higher interest rates too, you know, and the lack of available construction financing, the construction starts have come down considerably. Um, on a national level, you know, the construction starts were, you know, I think last year around 113 million um, nationwide. And then now this past quarter, at third quarter end of third quarter is 40 million so you know it's down what 66 percent or so so it's um if i did my math right there uh so yeah i mean i think that's a, a pretty big uh thing that's happening right now so at some point when the demand switch flips on even if it flips on even just a little bit you know with the lack of potential supply that that will be out there then we could start to see rent growth again in our market. Um, 
you know, because we saw astronomical rent growth over the past couple of years. I mean, at, at one point uh, in the IE West, which is Inland Empire West submarket, you know, rent growth from first or uh, second quarter 2021 to second quarter 2022 was 98.6%. So, so that is a, a drastic jump. And so now we're seeing that come come back down to to those kind of not to those levels yet where it was you know in 21, but it's probably uh, headed headed towards towards that that level. So so we'll see. You know, it's there's a a lot to a lot to track, a lot going on. You know, we've we were fortunate enough to uh, have our uh, port agreement. Uh, settled in the end of August of this year, that created some uh, certainty with the the labor unions and uh, the the ports of LA and Long Beach, and really up and down the West Coast. Um, so once we got that port agreement ratified, we've already started to see some uh, shift in container traffic uh, go back to the the West Coast because some of it was being diverted to East Coast ports during the supply chain crisis. Um, you know, and uh, and the uncertainty with the the labor union agreement. So with that ratified, that is, you know, we're, we've already seen some statistics already from September numbers that have shown that shift to happen back to West Coast, and then further um, uh, kind of worsening the situation for you know some some East Coast ports is what's happening at the Panama Canal. There's a severe drought that's happening right now, um, and so there's. Uh, great water restrictions that are limiting the number of vessels that can travel and pass through the, the Panama Canal. And so a container ship coming from Asia to get to an East Coast port has to pass through the, the Panama Canal, basically. Or they could go the other way and go through the Suez Canal. Um, you know, and that's, you know, probably what may need to happen for, for some, some container traffic. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the West Coast ports are, are going to be uh, a beneficiary of kind of what's happening with the Panama Canal at the, at the moment. Um, you know, and I think, you know, it's, it's also a, a potential long-term concern for some of these shippers, you know, with what's happening at the Panama Canal, because, you know, if there's future droughts, future uh, inclement weather that could, you know, have, for, you know, further... Uh, water restrictions or anything like that of that nature, you know, then that would just encourage folks to maybe just, hey, we're, we're just going to go through the West Coast, um, you know, as we originally kind of were doing uh, before. Um, so, and, and then the East Coast ports have their own labor agreement that they have to, to negotiate that, that's due or that expires in, in late 24. So they're, they're working on that now. And we've seen what that can do because uh, we just experienced it on the West Coast, um, so it can it can create some uncertainty there uh, as well. So, so we'll see. I mean, you know, if, you know, if we do, we need consumer spending to come back, um, you know, it's it's kind of been steady. You know, as I mentioned, with GDP growing um, 4.9 percent this last quarter annualized, um, and you know, we have the holiday season coming up here. So, you know, I, I expect consumer spending to still be fine. You know, I think it's really going to be telling what happens, you know, first quarter 24, second quarter 24, what that looks like, because um, that will have a, you know, consumer spending and those levels will have a direct effect on 
warehouse demand, tenant demand, and, and all that. So, Yeah, it seems like a, just a large collection of short-term factors that you're trying to navigate, which is unfortunate. I think we're all dealing with that yeah. now. There's just so many different variables uh, we're trying to keep track of that are affecting the market conditions. To what you mentioned, your strategy is to support larger term trends, which were the need for um, faster and faster delivery, the need for storage. These are things that aren't necessarily going away or hopefully not going away that will continue. But right now in the short term, there's just so many things that are uh, leading to short-term headwinds that are challenging to navigate. Yeah, that's a great way to to summarize it right there. You know, because uh, yeah, we're all experienced kind of this sh- what, what we believe is you know kind of short-term pain here and and trying to navigate it. Yeah, and then um, get us in a position to to take advantage of things as the market uh, recovers at some level, and then really get after it once it gets back in full swing. That's great. So you mentioned that you're primarily focused on the Southern California region. Skinnell, uh, as a company, where are some of your other stronger markets that you guys uh, work in and support? Yeah, so we have a, a Northern California office. We have a Dallas office. We just opened up an Atlanta office. Uh, Kansas City office was opened a few months before um, a Southern California office opened. So that's a relatively new office as well. Chicago. Uh, uh, Maryland, Virginia area, Minnesota, and our, our headquarters in, is in Indianapolis. And I think, you know, uh, what's unique with Scanel because we started out doing built-to-suits, you know, a lot of our development professionals are all mostly in um, Minneapolis, actually, Minneapolis and, and Indianapolis. And they can, because um, Indianapolis is where the corporate office is, but a lot of development folks are in both of those uh, markets because they could cover the entire country and they sent, you know, send people to other, you know, we're doing deals in uh, Oregon right now. We're doing deals, you know, all over the country. Um, and a lot of those folks are, you know, they, they, they run it from different, you know, different regions. Um, so, uh, but, you know, I think Southern California, you know, is just a, a region here, you know, that, that, that Scannell just wanted to have, you know, actual physical presence in. Um, and then, you know, because I think, the, the key too in, in, in our market is when when we're doing spec development work is you know finding the off market deals right so uh, being entrenched in the market and knowing all the the right folks and what's happening in the market where the deal is getting done at um, having that real time knowledge I think is really key um, to and that's why you know in, in a market like this it, it's really uh, beneficial to have you know a real kind of boots on the ground presence to, to stay on the forefront of, of all that's what's happening. Cause it changes so quickly. You know, there's, there's, um, things that are happening all the time and to, to know where, where all the deals are happening, you know, that's, uh, you know, crucial, I think, especially in a, in a market like this where it, it can get very competitive. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned you're primarily build a suit. Do you guys do any speculative work? Oh yeah, so um, we started out as only built a suit. Yeah, so from 1990 to 2012, it was all built a suit, and then decision was made in 2012 to uh, really expand the the company. Because if you're just doing built a suit work, you can only grow and contract as uh, as your clients do, you know. And but with uh, 
spec work, you can really take things to, to another level. And, you know, oftentimes the, the spec projects actually turn into, you know, a, a build a suit, you know, so, and the build a suit requirements can help lead to a spec development deal off market that, that you may not have found otherwise. So both business lines really helped one another quite a bit. And so I think today we're about 50-50 uh, build a suit versus spec. Uh, so, um, you know, I think the, the spec world, you know, right now is going through some, some challenges, but, you know, I think built to suits, you know, like in previous recessions and previous downturns will, will carry the day and, and, and help push us through. Cause those are the, you know, built to suits, you know, have, let's say you have a, a really good quality tenant with great credit, you know, you're going to be able to find debt and equity if you need it. Um, for, for a project like that. Once you already have a tenant in tow, you have the cost quantified, you have the rent coming in, all that. So, so that creates certainty for lenders and potential equity partners. So I, th I think those are the types of deals that, that you know, we'll be able to get done, in, even in times like this. So it's just finding the, the right tenants that, that have these requirements and then finding the, the, the right buildings and right uh, projects for them. And I guess this would change perhaps on a case-to-case -case basis, but would you say that there's anything that you're observing that tenants are looking for that might be different from what they might have been 10 years ago, or have there been any changes in what they're asking you guys for as a developer and the, the product they're looking to, to build with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a, a big thing that, that I, I'm kind of predicting is, you know, because labor, I think, is a big issue in getting good quality labor uh, for, for the warehouse workers or in, in, in the warehouse space. Um, so I think a big thing that we'll see is automation. Um, so automation obviously is extremely expensive, so not everyone can implement this, but as companies you know, try to, to search for, for good quality labor, they can't find it, you know, they, they naturally have to turn to, to automation to fill a lot of the, you know, maybe the mundane, repetitive tasks that uh, that need to get done within a, a warehouse. Um, so I think that's a trend that we'll continue to to see. Um, but like I said, I think it, it requires a pretty significant initial investment up front um, to to get that going. So um, you know, so we'll we'll see how that that trend uh, evolves. But you know, with that, I think that. Um, that requires, you know, a class A type building because you need a super flat floor uh, to accommodate all the different robotics and uh, computerized systems that uh, have to be extremely precise um, in, within the warehouse. So I think that's something that is going to evolve here as, um, as labor continues to be an issue. I mean, we're still at you know, historically low unemployment levels at 3.8%. And that's nationwide across all industries, you know. So, you know, finding good labor is, is hard everywhere, especially, I think, in the, the warehouse world. Yeah, given that statistic, and if it can use, continues to stay on that track, I imagine the automation would become, in, in some ways, a necessity for right. some of these operators. Right. Yeah, and I think also with with e-commerce, I mean, that's changed, um, 
you know the the warehouse uh, development uh, as well because uh, as I mentioned earlier you know if if you're an e-commerce company you're going to need to have some last mile facilities and so these are more you know smaller facilities that are closer into these uh, uh, residential communities you know to get the 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 one hour shipping to get the two hour same day shipping you know the faster and faster you you uh, you want the the product to your on your doorstep you know the closer in these warehouses need to be but you know ironically you know a lot of the, you know there's some pushback from from the communities to have warehouses near their, their near their um, near the residences so it's a it's a kind of a, a challenge that that we're facing now you know because the you know, we, we obviously want to be as close as possible so we can deliver these, you know, the, the tenants can deliver these products faster. Um, so, yeah, and I think, you know, just e-commerce in general, as I mentioned, it just has a larger footprint um, a requirement for, for their industrial real estate needs versus the traditional brick and mortar. So, so that's been a big change, you know. Um, and I, I think there's a, a stat, like for every billion dollars in e-commerce sales it requires another million square feet of space so yeah so so you know i think that um you know that just you know really uh you know shows like the 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 kind of the footprint and and expansive uh nature of of the e-commerce warehouse requirement versus what it was you know 10 years ago 15 years ago so yeah, I mean, I think that's just like I, like I was mentioning. It's just another reason for the long-term um, uh, viability and uh, staying power for for industrial, especially yeah. in Southern California. So you guys are looking to be ready for the long-term trends as they start to pick back up. Yeah. So I mean, that's you know, you you have to be be constantly aware of both. You know, short-term and long-term. Yeah. So. Uh, this has been so much great information. I feel like uh, we've really dug into um, some great details regarding the industrial and, and, and the regions, and you got into some things that um, weren't even on my radar, especially about the water situation in Panama. That's that's incredible. Is there anything else? Uh, obviously, you're much more plugged into the industrial world, um, you know, outside of the, the questions that I've asked so far, things that you're keeping your eye on. Um, any, any trends or, or things that you're looking into or tracking that most people might not be aware of right now about your space yeah i mean i think i I touched on all the all the major things i've i'm i'm really uh, keeping an eye on you know i think that the fed has uh, a great impact on what's going to happen in our world Um, the higher interest rates for longer uh, talk that that's happening you know i think that's going to definitely have a, a dampening effect on you know, the ability to, to get financing for construction loans. So, so we're tracking that. And, and, you know, I think the, the regional banks, um, you know, as especially the ones with significant office exposure are going to have some, some trouble, uh, you know, lending. And so, like I've mentioned that, you know, these, these regional banks were typically the go-to sources for construction lending. And without those groups, you know, you kind of turn to, to debt funds, which are are a lot more expensive, they can provide more leverage in some cases. But 
you know, their, their, their interest rates are, are much, much more higher. I mean, you know, we use uh, SOFR plus, you know, uh, 350 basis points typically for, you know, a, a regional bank right now. Um, but they're also requiring deposits and they're also requiring recourse. So we've seen, you know, deposits range from $2 million to $7 million just to, you know, just to do the deal, you know. So that, that makes it very difficult to, um, to, to go with a, a, a situation like that. So, you know, you, you end up turning to, um, you know, debt fund, you know, and they're more like uh, SOFR plus 575, you know. So, you know, SOFR two years ago was near 0%. So, you know, um, if we're talking a regional bank, SOFR plus 350 or 300, that's a 3% rate. You know, nowadays, SOFR is at 5.3, 5.4. So now you're talking 8, 9% for, for uh, if you're SOFR plus 300 or 350. But then if you're SOFR plus 575, then now you're, you know, quite a bit higher, you know, 11, 12% range. So, and, you know, the, the amount of leverage has changed too, you know, because, you know, two years ago we could get, you know, 65% loan to cost. Now it's more... 50% loan to cost. So, so that has a big change. And then, you know, in our pro forma, you know, we're, we're assuming that, um, you know, we have to carry these buildings for longer. If we're not leasing it right away, like before, we would often, in two years ago, we would pre-lease or, or, um, or, you know, lease right when construction's completed. So we didn't have carry and you know, but now, you know, debt is three times more expensive and we have to potentially carry it for nine months or even 12 months or longer, you know, so, and we have to bake that into the pro forma now. So that has a, a great effect on kind of where land pricing needs to be. And, you know, so, you know, you combine that with, with falling lease rates, you know, then, or stable, you know, or, or stagnant lease rates without rent growth, that's going to have a pretty significant impact on, you know, what you could now pay for, for land, uh, for industrial. So, um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of things to, to really, uh, be tracking right now because it's a you know, fairly uncertain environment. You know, as I mentioned, you know, we're kind of, uh, at the mercy of the fed at this point, kind of see what they do. Um, but you know, I know when they start having to, to cut rates, uh, that's probably not a good thing either because that means we're in a recession and they need to, to stimulate the economy now. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough spot right now, I think. So, so we'll, we'll continue to see how long interest rates stay higher for longer. Um, you know, I think, you know, the Fed in December will likely hold again. I, I, I thought that they, they may um, increase at some point because they have talked about that especially when the gdp numbers came back the way they did this last quarter but i think we've seen inflation you know start to cool slightly i think it was 3.2 percent year over year you know the previous previous month it was about 3.9 so you know i think it's you know the the effects of of the interest rates are working its way through um and and bringing down inflation to some extent, but, you know, with, with unemployment still very low, 
you know, we're still seeing wage growth and wage growth has a factor in inflation. So, you know, I think, you know, to, to get to this, you know, magical 2% that the Fed is wanting, you know, I think it's going to be, uh, it, if they really actually want to get there, it's, it could be pretty painful because you need, you need to have, um, you know, wages to, to come down and you need, and you create that by, by having more, more, uh, unemployment. So, you know, those are all kind of things that we're, we're tracking and, you know, obviously obvious it has effects on what tenants decision-making is and what they do and are they expanding or not? Are they going to need warehouse space in the near term? Um, yeah. And, and those will all trickle down to what the lease rates, um, will, will dictate. And with, with more supply right now, you know, there's going to be downward pressure on lease rates. Yeah. So, definitely a lot of variables to keep track. Yeah. Of. A lot, a lot of, a lot to track for sure. Yeah. Well, this was a great overview, as I mentioned before, uh, super helpful, very insightful, really appreciate you have uh, coming on and offering to, to share your experience. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I think the best way is just uh, through LinkedIn. I'm uh, very active on LinkedIn. Um, you can just search my, my name and I'll, I'll pop up and happy to connect that way. And uh, if there's any questions, yeah, I think that's the best way to, to reach out to me. And then, you know, oftentimes you know, my LinkedIn connections turn into, you know, we you know, take it outside of LinkedIn and, and, and chat more about different markets and met all people from all over the country that way. And it's been really, uh, rewarding. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I would just encourage any of your listeners that want to connect, uh, to, to do it that way. All right. Great. Absolutely. Jay, thanks again. Uh, also looking forward to, you know, keeping in touch and hopefully catching up sometime in the future. And yeah. uh, hopefully by that time, things will have uh, leveled out a little bit and we can make more sense of what the future might hold. But um, regardless, it would be uh, great to, to keep in touch. Yeah, yeah. And I, likewise, and, you know, and I think that that's the beauty of it. You know, it's like we no one knows. Right. I mean, no one has a crystal ball, you know, so we're, we're making the best decisions we can with the information we have at hand. And I don't think it would be as fun. Right. If we knew exactly what was going to happen. So. You know, and, you know, these challenging times are also the, the best times to, to learn and to grow and, you know, really find out what you're, you're made of and you kind of prove yourself and keep keep working hard. There's going to be opportunities even amongst all the, the challenges that I outlined. There's going to be opportunities and, you know, it's just a matter of us finding them and, you know, staying disciplined, staying consistent and, and pushing through. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Definitely yeah. the mindset you need to have. Right, right. Okay, so. well, thanks again, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully be in touch soon. Yeah, well, thank you, Keith. Really appreciate you, you having me, and uh, you know, happy to, to join with you anytime. Appreciate it.